Welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. I'm Christine Murray, founding editor-in-chief of The Developer and director of the Festival of Place. Our ambition is to break down silos and bring people together to unpick what makes places that thrive. Many local councils declared a climate emergency back in 2019, and despite the interruption of a global pandemic, local authorities have not been sitting still since then. Many have developed net zero action plans, decarbonization programs, and assembled climate teams. But a recent report by the Key Cities, a group of 27 UK cities, highlights some of the challenges faced by local authorities, not least a lack of clarity, direction, and funding from central government. Gina Dowding, Lancaster County Councillor, and Richard Cook, leader of Gloucester City Council, join me to discuss the recommendations from the report, Leveling Up, Emissions Down. Um, Hi, uh, Christine. I'm Richard Cook. I'm leader of Gloucester City Council. Um, In that, Gloucester City is one of uh, 27 cities in the uh, Key Cities Network, and I'm Deputy Chair of Key Cities with the uh, Climate emergency as it's uh, as my portfolio uh, in that role i also represent key cities on the uh, 3ci group which is the uh, cities commission for climate investment which is a public private partnership designed to take uh, private money into the public sector to enable climate projects to proceed and gina you're here with us too will you tell us a little bit about you and your role Yeah, good afternoon. So um, my name is Gina Dowding. I'm a city councillor on Lancaster City Council. We're also one of the key cities, part of the network. And um, I'm portfolio holder for climate action. The key cities, which you're both a part of, have revealed this report, uh, Leveling Up Emissions Down, which sums up some of the challenges that the cities are facing in terms of tackling net zero. I think um, amongst some of the comments, one of the uh, parts that stood out for me was this um, question of roles and strategy. So can we talk a little bit about uh, these recommendations? There's kind of seems to be a lack of clarity that perhaps people don't understand on whose job it is to to initiate these climate reduction programs. Well, one of, one of the key messages that came from the Leveling Up Emissions Down report was that uh, progress is being hindered by central government through a lack of powers, clarity, capacity and funding. Um, Most of the cities within the Key Cities Network do not have uh, specified funding for dealing with climate projects. It's out of our um, non, it's not a non-statutory thing that we do. So it's out of what's left over that we can actually make progress. And that's why progress is slow. The other reason is when it comes to bidding for funding from government, it's always competitive. You have to produce a bid, and that takes time and capacity to produce those bids. Uh, and uh, and even then, you, there's no guarantee that you'll get any or anything like as much money as you might need to. Uh, Gloucester City at the moment is in the final stages of um, um, researching a climate risk and vulnerability assessment, uh, which will enable us to develop a climate action plan uh, in, in coming years. Uh, but 
it costs an enormous amount of time and effort and money to produce that. Uh, I think we spelt, spent uh, very close to £100,000 on just producing that uh, CRVA, the Climate Risk and Vulnerability Assessment. And that's the starting point of being able to do something. I mean, we have, before, uh, before we've gone into that, we have done lots of bits and pieces, but it's not connected. Uh, it's just designed to take advantage of pockets of money that we've been able to um, uh, find, such as our tennis centre in the north of the city. We benefited from a Salix grant uh, um, oh, back three, four, five years ago, which enabled us to put air source heat pumps on the building uh, and solar panels, making it energy, um, uh, energy cost free. Uh, but we haven't yet been able to do something similar on our swimming pool, uh, which, uh, uh, which would benefit us incredibly if we could do. In fact, when we applied for funding from government, they turned us down. And only a few days after that, the whole leisure centre had to be closed down for lack of affordability. We have since reopened it again, but uh, it just shows how disjointed everything is. I don't know, perhaps it's uh, appropriate for Gina to come in now and tell us some of the issues in, um, uh, in Lancaster. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I, I totally agree with you, Richard. And I mean, just to go back to the sort of strategic uh, level, basically, government isn't giving us any clear direction. So they've not laid out what is go local government and local council's role in achieving net zero. So uh, as Richard says, there's no mandate for us to do this as the local councils. And it's pretty heroic really, that so much progress is being made um, on this front at all. And it's particularly brought into sharp relief right now. I mean, particularly um, this time of year when we're preparing for our budgets, uh, the, you know, for to be adopted um, early next year, when we're under so much financial pressure. Um, you know, there are some councils literally facing bankruptcy. Um, so I think... The, the thing to say is that it's pretty amazing that local government are really taking a lead on measures to achieve uh, carbon emissions reductions. Um, in Lancaster, we've done really well. And just on, to mention two things to begin with, I guess, um, we applied for the um, Public Buildings Decarbonisation Fund and was successful. Richard's talked about that. And we managed to get one, our leisure centre, a huge uh, building and, of course, a huge energy consumer, um, effectively net zero. Um, and uh, we won awards for this in Lancaster, so we're very, very proud of it. But that involved, obviously, the funding for heat pumps and uh, internal energy systems, but also enabled us to build uh, a solar farm on a neighbouring, um, well, it was a former uh, waste tip. Um, so we were able to maximise that. But, you know, the, the, the effort and the resources that have gone in from us as a council in terms of our staff capacity have been huge to achieve that. So I guess we, we were lucky that we, ha we have got a climate team, um, excellent uh, members of staff who are really dedicated to working on this. So that's, you know, something that um, I'm pleased to say we're in the lead. But, you know, so many councils are trying this kind of initiative. But as Richard says, it always depends on external being successful in a bidding process for extra government funding to help make that happen. But it never covers the whole cost. There's nearly always some match funding that... Um, 
needs to be put into it. And then there's the additional staff capacity. Um, another area where in Lancaster we've been really battling with the uh, legislative framework, if you like, is on developing our local plan. So we adopted, that's, we adopted a local plan in 2020 and immediately we decided to do a climate emergency review of the local plan, like a partial review with the ultimate aim of reducing carbon emissions, but particularly on the, the new build and the energy efficiency of all new housing. And we've really um, struggled with the, um, the whole process. Um, there's a lot of detail, but basically we've had good news, I think, just last week with the government deciding to, um, to reissue a written ministerial statement at last. So the one we were working to was 2015. Um, and that's now finally been superseded. It's still, there's still a lot of kind of um, potential ambiguity, but we're very hopeful now that we, we are able to uh, go beyond government's own um, uh, energy uh, efficiency standards. Um, there's a couple of criteria that have to be met and we, one of them is viability. And we, we're pretty confident that we can prove that because that was part of the local plan process. But, you know, that, that, that even the process in itself of, as everyone knows, writing a local plan, the whole process of adopting a local plan or a review is enormous. And then we've had this extra months, literally months long um, exchange with the inspector about what we can or can't do, um, challenging, you know, government policy, etc. But anyway, we, we've got finally got some good news on on that front. But I think that just throws into um, into like the you know, the lack of clarity or the fact that the government government aren't up to speed. National government is not up to speed with local government in this. You know, we want to take the lead. We want to really make progress, and we know our residents do as well. So you know, we these things are really popular. There's support for them, and yet we're re really hampered. So. It's not just the resources, although that's a big thing. It's it's the whole framework in which we're operating. And of course, people are familiar with that fight. It featured on the Channel 4 program. So congratulations on getting your uh, ministerial statement. I'm sorry if it contains ambiguity still, but there was nothing ambiguous about uh, Kevin McLeod uh, challenging uh, Michael Gove in front of a, a, an audience to, uh, to, to bring him to you. So Richard, I mean, are you recognizing those additional challenges where it's not only financial, it's also, you know, kind of an active sense of blocking from central government? Well, yes, of course, there's, um, it's not active blocking, although I was very disappointed when they recently announced um, that they were rowing back on the 2030 ambitions uh, for uh, petrol and diesel vehicles and, uh, and, in, uh, and gas boilers and so on. Um, so I was very disappointed when they rowed back in that respect because actually it just pushes everything into the further distance and makes things more difficult because you're trying to do things more quickly. But I just wanted to... Um, uh, this won't make Gina's day, but uh, I've got a, a uh, I've got a, um, a briefing happening tomorrow on the ministerial announcement on local plans, which actually tells me that uh, that ministerial announcement is going to forbid local plans going beyond current building regs on energy efficiency measures in new buildings. Now, I haven't had that briefing yet, but if that's actually the case, um, again, central government is blocking what we're able to do at a local level. Uh, the other area I wanted to talk about um, was about um, skills. We need on skills 
to um, um, to get more people in training to deliver net uh, green projects net zero. That's one of the biggest problems at the moment. Again, I went to um, uh, Gloucestershire College oh about six months ago, and they said at the current level of skills training, we will never have enough people to um, uh, to service electric vehicles. Uh, because they just they just can't train them fast enough at, uh, at current rates, and they don't get enough funding to be able to provide that training. Um, I saw Gina flagging, uh, you know, raising a hand towards me then, so I'm going to ask her if she wants to come back in on that. So um, I just wanted to add, um, going back to the written ministerial statement, Richard, um, there are two criteria, so there's sort of two, um, two criteria that have to be met. So when we when you get the briefing and we all explore it um, in more detail, um, one of them is about financial viability, which we um, are fairly confident that we had covered anyway, that um, we can still prove financial viability. And the other is about um, the way in which the energy efficiency increases are expressed in terms of the standard assessment procedure. Um, so, but again, I mean, this highlights, doesn't it? How, you know, there's this, this, it's not clear. There's mixed messages. People read things and then they have to have, you know, it's just so not clear what's coming out from government. It's, they're not trying to make life easy um, in terms of this agenda at all. Um, but just moving on to the point you made about skills, Richard, again, I would totally agree. And um, and it, just even on the latest announcement from government about um, the salary threshold for immigrants, it was kind of interesting. I was talking to my uh, uh, the, the staff in the council and they were saying that there's even that restriction could have a negative impact on the work of local authorities um, in terms of the 38,000 salary, 38,000 pound salary threshold. I mean, local authorities are not able to pay that kind of salary. And yet we have huge numbers in this sector, you know, um, working from abroad. Um, so that could inhibit the skills gap in terms of you know, climate action capacity in terms of like, if you like the policy side or the white collar workers, but then there's also implications for green skilled workers, you know, whether it's, um, you know, specialist welders to do with sort of um, district heat networks that are required, you know, the sort of technical skills. So, so yeah, it feels like a really difficult environment I recently read a report out of uh, Canada, actually, which uh, showed that a large proportion of workers, construction workers within residential, were on uh, spousal visas. They weren't skilled uh, staff coming over with job offers. They were actually partners uh, looking to settle. So it's, it's very interesting where that spousal um, contingent could hit uh, an influx and there already is a construction shortage as we know there was another point in the recommendations which i wasn't particularly familiar with the issue that is being faced but it would be good to hear about it the energy distribution network operators there was a recommendation for the regulations to require operators to align their plans with local development plans. So what is happening here and, you know, uh, how is the energy uh, distribution network out of sync with how these places are changing? 
Well, I think uh, I've had conversations recently with National Grid in, in our area, and uh, they're telling me that um, any new um, project for, say, solar panels or if we're lucky enough, wind power on, uh, on land um, would have to wait between 8 and 15 years to be connected to the grid. 8 and 15 years. It's true, Christine. I see your sh shock on your face, but it's absolutely true. We're trying to um, deliver net zero, and we're told if you if you develop a new wind farm or a, a, a solar solar array, you have to wait 50, up to 15 years to get it to get connected to the grid. So what I'm looking at in Gloucester is putting on solar panels on a, the roof of our car parks and um, using them to power EV uh, EV charges within the car parks, or if it's a large enough car park to run a private wire to a nearby building to power the building, because that's the only way of making sense out of this. You can't put a solar array on top of a car park and then wait up to 15 years to get it connected to the grid to t start making money. That's just bonkers. Um, so the, the, the DNOs are, the, should, sorry, the distribution network operators uh, are really a long way behind the curve on this and uh, need, to, uh, uh, need to up their game as far as their investment is concerned so that when we do try and generate more renewable energy, we can effectively use it within the grid. That way we'll be able to stop using um, uh, fossil fuels, uh, gas, or I know it's rarely used nowadays in the UK, but coal. Um, but it, we'll be able to turn those uh, power stations off and have much more in the way of renewable energy straight away. Um, it's just bonkers that it takes so long to connect those um, um, to any, you know, to to some uh, to the grid. Absolutely shocking! Absolutely shocking. Gina, go ahead. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it, this is the result of really long-term lack of infrastructure investment by. Uh, by government, you know, we knew this was coming down the line that, you know, the whole of the grid. So there's the national grid and then there's the, uh, if you like, the local grid or the, the district network operators. So on a regional basis, and both of those are struggling to get the level of investment so that they can accept um, the energy generation that a whole range of project providers want to supply, you know, and, and local councils are, are one of them. So, um, Similarly to um, Gloucester, we've got projects in the pipeline. Fortunately, we have been able to secure a connection and we've got plans to build a four megawatt uh, solar farm. Um, I turned, um, referred earlier to our solar farm that's next to our uh, leisure centre. Because of the restrictions, that had to just be one megawatt. But we would have, we could have gone larger. You know, we wanted it, it to be bigger. So it's actually restricting live projects that are able to switch us over to renewable energy here and here and now and you know there are alternatives but coming online so you know there's battery storage and there's sleeving arrangements and please don't ask me to go too much into the technical details of how they work but you know sort of so we actually use the electricity without uh, i think as richard said it's a private wire but you know without it needing to go into the grid but what amazes me is the 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 level of the complexity of that technology, how it's changing, the financial arrangements, and you know we've got small numbers of staff in local authorities, um, and you know their skill base is having to to increase massively. I mean, you know, I feel really really lucky 
um, in Lancaster with, with our climate team. But it's it's really complex and it, it's really um, time consuming. Or, you know, so, you know, when's the best time to move on this? Do you wait for new technology? Do you keep trying to push for the connection? Um, yeah, so basically the the that the chickens are coming home to roost because of that lack of infrastructure investment over a long period of time. Again, another thing that's really slowing us down. Um, and the pity of all of that, of course, is that uh, energy gener renewable energy generation projects for councils can be really good income generators as well. So we you know we need these. We're we're all in. Um, financial difficulty and, and some of these projects would really um help us in terms of our budget as well you know the, over a, a you know fairly short period of time they're generating income for councils and that's so much needed so they're generating income when it feeds back into the grid or or saving money because the running of leisure centers is in, incredibly expensive both both those things yeah I just wanted to uh, talk about a project uh, that I've been close to in Gloucester. We have a uh, former landfill site very close to the city centre. It closed about four years ago, um, and they they have a private uh, they have a um, a grid connection uh, because they produce methane from that site from the rotting waste that's within it. Uh, they capture that methane and use it to drive a turbine to generate electricity. Uh, now, of course, it's relatively constant, the amount that they're generating there, although it's declining as more as less and less methane is produced. Uh, but um, the, the whole site, 360 acres, has been capped now, and they want to use 100 acres of it for putting in two megawatts of solar panels. Um, but solar panels only work when the sun's shining or, uh, you know, it's very bright. And um, they've, although they've got a connection to the grid, the grid doesn't want them. Uh, they doesn't. They don't want the electricity produced from that site because it's variable. It doesn't come at night time. It doesn't come when it's raining. Uh, it only comes when the sun is shining brightly. And they're saying it's not regular enough, so they don't want it. Uh, you know, again, how ridiculous is that? It seems completely nonsensical. I, I think I'm, I'm hearing so many, uh, there's so many other questions that have come up, but one, I wanted to return to the skills training. It's something that we hear a lot in terms of retrofit, uh, which, you know, wasn't one of the kind of main outcomes of the report, but I, you know, some of these things you're speaking about in terms of adding solar panels and um, heat exchange are retrofit initiatives. Is that another area that's being currently hindered on progress? Sorry, if I could just quickly come in there. Um, retrofit is a problem because people who own those houses, often landlords, often housing associations, uh, they don't want to spend the money. And until they want to spend the money doing retrofit, we don't have enough people um, uh, trained because there's no point training for a job that you're not needed for. Uh, so it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Uh, even even house owners who own old Victorian houses are thinking this is expensive, even though there are government grants for it. It's still expensive. If you want to put in a heat pump, you've got a nice seven and a half thousand pound grant coming from government at the moment. But depending on the size of the house, you might have to be finding several thousand more. Uh, now, if your house is rented, then why would you do that in a rented house? Your landlord should be doing that, but why would the landlord be doing that? Because he gets no benefit from it. 
um, his his only benefit maybe comes when he gets a new tenant and can put his rent up to pay the costs involved. So that sort of retrofit is difficult uh, because people generally don't want it. I don't know, Gina, do you experience the well, same? I think that there's um, there's also the incentive. So, you know, we're not seeing uh, enough stability and certainty in terms of that supply of skills because, the, again, the incentives, the grant system changes. Um, anything that uh, comes forward is such small scale. Um, we know that heat loss from buildings and the you know the, the cost of the, the carbon emissions from homes our existing stock is um is enormous it's a really big part of the um the problem that we've got to tackle and i think I, this is something that's so obviously going to be dealt with better by local councils than national government because it you know it depends on your housing stock it depends on you know that knowledge of, of your your local area um so the, this has got to be something that the, the government tackles and soon in terms of a, a much more certain funding system so that we can build up those skills um but i think you you know at the moment you're right that, that you know right now if if everybody who who is thinking about retrofitting their homes actually decided to there isn't the skill supply there so it, it's totally chicken and chicken and egg but um we've got to scale this up and 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 fast um you know i guess councils like ours at the moment we're focusing on looking at our own council housing stock but even then it's really difficult to get you know a, a full-on program to bring this up to, to, to top standards so we're, we're you know epc c is the that's the energy performance certificate c level is the the, the one we're, we're hoping to, and that makes some significant progress. Um, but but in, just to, to broaden the theme about skills, there is that, you know, there's, there's other areas as well where we need, you know, move towards uh, digitalization or, you know, sect, the change, the change, a change in the sort of way we approach um, electric, um, the electric sector and that's something we're trying to encourage in lancaster is look at what you know what are the skills gap how can we work in partnership with our particularly our electric sector actually because we've got a, a really strong base for those growing um research um development and sort of early adopters in that in that field in our district and just trying to make sure that we are an attractive district for people to move into and stay so they're not just staying in the south um and the you know into that sector can attract people um retain them in this area um and so we do have we have an electec partnership with that sector in lancaster i'm going to ask I'm, the term electec so that's electrical technician or is it kind of yeah. any kind of technology related to electrification yeah. electronic technology yeah okay great so i i wanted to ask about um you know i'm getting this sense there's so much there's so you know there's so much goodwill there's so much good work that's happening it's it's despite you know these kind of challenges but there's a you know perhaps a perception that these are that 
climate mitigation is unpopular on a local level. And I know you're you're um, with a small percentage, I think, probably of the population, but there it seems to be a very vocal uh, percentage of uh, of the general public. Um, and we've seen these kind of flashpoints around um usually around traffic projects or reducing emissions. Uh, the report touches on, you know, the need to, um, the political challenges of, of net zero action. You know, what would help really, you know, what is missing? And you know, is it unpopular? Is that just a perception? Is it this small group that's kind of um, very vocal and creating issues? Or, uh, you know, is it... Um, is it actually, you know, are these moves that the councils are making more popular than we think? I would say, Christine, that actually there's huge support for this agenda. And uh, as you say, it tends to be a small vocal minority that gets amplified in on social media. Um, and we have to, I think, as councils, be on the front foot and be talking to if you like, the silent majority and making sure that, you know, we've got those people on board who generally want to see action in this area. And of course, people, um, yeah, they they, um, they, they want to be involved. And one of the things we did in Lancaster was to set up a pe people's jury on the climate emergency um, a few years ago. Um, we really worked hard and actually we went into lockdown soon after the jury was set up and despite lockdown they carried on meeting um, and developed a really strong well a strong network in themselves but also um, in terms of getting up to speed on a range of topics and giving recommendations uh, back to the council on the areas that they would like to see 40 recommendations covering up you know whole, the, the sort of whole range of topics and uh, even you know years on we're still in touch with members of the jury and we're about to relaunch um a program with them leading the way for residents engagement in action so again i have to say the government isn't helping on this because i think that they're trying to stoke as kind of culture wars over some transport issues etc you know their plan for drivers um really what was that about um you know that there's uh there's just on an equality issue, we need to be investing in public transport, uh, um, in better buses and yeah, active travel and not trying to pit that against the so-called drivers. You know, most people, even if they're drivers, are also pedestrians and cyclists and go on, you know, need to get their children to school. And actually, investment in public transport helps everybody. So, yeah, I, th I think that this is something that as councils, we have to not be afraid to to um, to deal with those that vociferous group, but have strong plans and be able to um, speak to um, ordinary people about the benefits of whether it's you know 20 mile per hour areas or low traffic zones or whatever, um, because most people actually want cleaner air, a better public realm, quieter streets safer routes to school you know it, everybody wants that so we don't we we shouldn't be pitting that against um yeah the so-called um driver's lobby richard are you seeing that as well you know public support for yeah. initiative yeah i 
I strongly agree uh, with Gina there. That there has, there is in this area at least, uh, uh, quite strong support for climate change initiatives uh, uh, amongst the silent minority. Uh, there is the the loud and noisy minority um, in in some areas. I've noted it particularly in Oxfordshire uh, of late uh, in their talking about 15-minute neighbourhoods and the threat that that is imprisoning them in their, uh, you know, in their 15-minute area and they'll never be able to get out of it again. What nonsense. But that's the sort of uh, negative opinions that are coming out. But I think that's very small, really. There are not many who are there, but they are loud and noisy. Um, but I wanted to actually move on to a subject that I, I was lucky enough to speak to Key Cities Innovation Network a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Innovation Network is the uh, collaboration of the universities in the cities uh, of key cities. Uh, currently, there are about 12 universities involved in that, and I had to speak at their symposium. And I chose to speak about behaviour change, because it doesn't matter how much uh, you might introduce technological innovations or, or developments to um, enable uh, climate mitigation, you've got to get people to use them and make use of them. We talked about retrofit earlier, and you've got to get people to actually want to retrofit their house. Um, we haven't talked about agriculture inv involved in all of this, but eating less meat is something that is going to improve the climate, uh, uh, the climate outlook. Uh, and yet, when it comes to eating less red meat, um, is everybody going to be keen on that? You're asking people to make huge changes to their own way of doing, you know, living their daily life. If people are accustomed to going overseas for two weeks, twice a year for their holidays, you're going to have to persuade them to stop getting on an aircraft because that's not the right thing to do. People are going to have to make those daily changes to their behavior in order to see this through. It's down to individuals. 70% of all climate emissions are down to the actions of individuals. And therefore, we have to make this change at the individual level. And that's where we're going to have difficulty. Because when it comes to somebody not getting in their car to take their child to school, when it comes to somebody choosing not to have an overseas holiday, when it comes to not having um, uh, you know, steak for dinner tonight, um, people are going to have to make those changes. And I detect that there is enough apathy amongst the population that it's going to be very difficult to make those changes. People might very well say, yeah, we've got to do something. But when it comes down to the personal level, I think that there are far less who are actually going to actively choose to do those things. We need to persuade them, and that's the difficulty. It, that's interesting, Richard, because I, having agreed with you with so much, I would say I would disagree with you on this one. I think um, I'm not saying that some of those challenges um, aren't difficult, but I do think that it's the we have to change the culture. We there are so many ways in which we can use incentives. Um, financial is obviously one of them. I mean, just you know, and 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 using ultimately those tools that are carrots and sticks. But you know, just in terms of say bus use, I I'm always astonished at how um, people, a lot of people have a negative view of traveling by bus until they actually do it. Um, you know, whether they've got a kind of a, a historic memory, but actually the buses are, get, you know, obviously this isn't for everybody. So I, I, I you know, because there's always the, the whataboutery, the people who live in rural areas where there is only an hour, an hourly service or, or less. But um, 
I think that, you know, if you've got a good bus service that's um, efficient, regular, on time, um, it's about, you know, persuading people to try it, but giving them incentives. So, you know, whilst we've still got some companies who are offering um, parking permits to, or, you know, lower park, low cost parking permits to their staff or customers, we need to be switching those kind of things to bus passes. And then, you know, the more people that use it, the better the lobbying and the way things improve. I mean, you know, I, I, we haven't talked about the whole agricultural issue and, and emissions from land use, but even just on a the sort of the switch to people eating plant-based food, you know, you go out for a meal and there's, you have to look very hard to find your um, vegan option if you're a if you are a vegan, you know, there's, it's giving people more choice, more options, um, and making those things more attractive. Um, so I think I would be more hopeful in a way. I'm not saying it's not a challenge, but I think that, and also you gain momentum once you start with a certain cr number of people adopting behavior change, it becomes a thing. And then people follow suit. I mean, who'd have thought that we were all, we would all be working from home um, or facing out, you know, on, on computers all day. You know, these things do happen, can happen, and people adapt to them. So I'm more optimistic about that behaviour change side if the context in which it happens is supportive, you know, if the, if the incentives are there. And you, you, like you said, you know, you need to have an, another option. So if your public transit is not, your public transport is not sufficient to get you to work and home or to do your pickups on the way and, and to and from, you can't really opt for it. So it's making sure that option is available and affordable for people to make that behavior change. I wanted to ask about, you've mentioned a couple of times financial challenges. It seems to be in the news quite a lot, perhaps because it is budget time uh, that local authorities are struggling. Are these climate teams, are these climate initiatives at risk? I would say yes. I'm afraid, you know, it is. it has got to that level. So, um, you know, some of our projects that we have in the pipeline um, in Lancaster, um, I talked already that we we were successful in in one bidding round for um, public building decarbonisation funding. Um, we are hoping to be successful um, in a bid that's currently in. But right now, in terms of our um, capital program as a city council, you know, I'm going to really struggle to to keep that in the budget for next year um because of the pressure on, on the budget um even if you know even if it makes sense over a long period of a longer period of time you know all any borrowing that we we will have to match fund um capital into that and that has an impact on our revenue account so you know the general rev revenue fund so i i think we can't pretend that um the situation in terms of local government is getting to crisis point and we've we're seeing that aren't we with some councils um not just threatening bankruptcy but going you know going bankrupt and issuing 114 statements and um the like so as i started with really i think it, local authorities are heroic in the work that they're doing across the board in terms of attempting to take on this agenda and doing really well in it Again, I would very much agree um, with um, Gina. Uh, things are at risk because it's not a statutory requirement for us to deliver climate change uh, mitigation. Um, and even if it was, 
we would struggle to do that because we don't have the funding to do that. We have funding for other purposes, but um, Gloucester at the moment is going to ex well overspend on its uh, its twenty two twenty three sorry twenty three twenty four budget um, potentially by up to a million pounds uh, because. Um, uh, because of the cost of temporary accommodation for all the refugees which are being um, uh, released at short notice from their um, uh, from their hotels we can't find enough housing for them we don't have enough housing so we've got to find temporary accommodation and that's much more expensive uh, than um, uh, than being able to put them into uh, you know in, into uh, um, social housing uh, if if we had that available so we're working with all our housing providers um, we're working with everybody who we can do but we're still potentially going to be way over budget and next year it looks like it's going to be exactly the same some of these asylum seekers are released or given notice to leave their uh, hotel with only seven days notice um, and uh, with seven days notice how do you find accommodation of your own uh, how do you even manage to register for benefits um, how do you get enough money to buy food? Um, uh, you know, and they're going to our, um, uh, our asylum seekers support charities and all they're able to do is give them a sleeping bag. Again, it's just ridiculous. We end up with these people on the streets and we're having to find temporary accommodation, which is at a premium because um, the, the government or, uh, or organizations like Clear Springs that have worked with the government have bought up all the hotel space and now resell it back to the, um, uh, back to the councils at premium rates. They're the ones who are making the profit at our expense. You know, it's all very well for the Home Office to say that we've made a, a magnificent achievement in uh, in meeting our targets by getting all of these refugees out of hotels, but they've just dumped the problem on another area of government. And because of that, uh, and this isn't really terribly relevant to uh, uh, to this climate conversation that we're having, but it's actually put so much financial stress on the local authorities. Mm. Uh, I read the other day that one in five might have to, uh, over the next two years, uh, have to declare a Section 114 notice, which means that uh, they're effectively bankrupt because of this problem. And if you've got those problems, how can you possibly start spending or keep spending money at the level that you have been on uh, your climate change projects? Um, they will end up being the bottom of the list because there's no way to support them. And of course, it is related because we know with climate change comes increased you know, need for people to relocate. And also, you know, this is a future workforce of people. These are people that could be invested in as they settle mm -hmm. into this country. But what chance do they have if they have a sleeping bag to become, you know, those future skilled workers that we need? Uh, so I think it's uh, it's it's quite heartbreaking all in. I think there is the you know the the election on the horizon in 2024 and this assumption that that change in central government is coming down the pipeline. Are you satisfied with the platform of the Labour government on these issues? I'm not sure what platform they have that's any different from anybody else. Um, there's currently very little money available in government full stop. Um, what's, I don't know where it's all being spent. Uh, I don't follow the, uh, the that sort of level of detail, but it's not coming to where it's needed. If if local government is what's uh, is the area that uh, central government believes should be dealing with the climate change mitigation efforts, they're not funding us to do it. So there's no money coming into this area. Government itself is roaring back from its commitments, as I heard about the uh, the move from 2030 to 2035. It, it doesn't help because it provides um, a platform of instability rather than stability. Uh, it discourages investment. 
how you know if car companies though want to you know if they want stability in terms of government policy that has just been the opposite of it they've been told for years that it's going to be 2030 and then quite recently it's changed to 2035 that's hardly conducive to uh, um, helping them to plan their investments um, so you know it's it's a very confused area i don't think the local authorities uh, uh, will find it easy to pilot this area particularly with the challenges at the moment um, so i'm quite pessimistic that we'll uh, we'll get as a nation to uh, uh, net zero by 2050 and as although we're, we're going to try as hard as we can do i think funding will make it very difficult I'm not optimistic either that things are going to drastically change under a new government um, in terms of uh, the funding for this work. We obviously always hopeful. Um, it's interesting because, you know, that, yeah, this needs investment. And, you know, I think there's a kind of general, um, generally accepted wisdom at the moment. There is no money, but actually we have seen inequalities increasing there there are there is money in the economy it's just not in the right hands you know the rich are getting richer and there is there are ways that we could increase taxation um i'm a green um we would look towards a, a wealth tax you know on that that um it, real top level of wealth because those are the people that have benefited during the the, the last decade or so um that haven't suffered um and that money is really required now for this agenda. There were also those uh, new licenses for oil and gas and subsidies to various parts of the industry. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, we will have to do this. It's just where, at what point will the government recognize the word emergency when we talk about climate emergency, recognize the urgency of the situation. I mean, interestingly, in the pensions world, they talk about the inevitable policy response. So, like, you know, people know that the, the, a policy response to the climate crisis is inevitable. Um, we, we're all geared up for it. The investors are, will know it's coming in the private sector. It's like everybody but central government realizes that we need to get on this. And what's so sad in this discussion really is that there are so many wins if we just got ahead if we or we won't be ahead now but if we you know if we we could still take a lead um we were doing that to, to some extent and the benefits across for our you know our um for, for the economic sector are huge but also the benefits, you know, the, some of the things we've talked about would have huge social benefits in reducing inequalities, you know, better public transport, uh, energy efficient homes. So they cut across the board um, of meeting not just economic um, outcomes, but social value too, and as well as saving the planet. So it's so disappointing that really the last decade we've, we've wasted it uh, um, in this country. And we could have really been had the moral high ground on this to be taking the lead because there were signs that the UK were going to do that.
I just want to uh, express a note of optimism about working with 3CI, the Cities Commission for Climate Investment. Uh, and as I said, that's a, a private-public partnership to get money from the private sector into the public sector. Now, the public sector needs to demonstrate that there is a, um, a return on investment for that private sector money. Um, but gradually, as the, um, as the climate change problems become worse and worse, um, people who've got money will recognise that there is actually a, a return on investment just by spending that money on these climate change projects to, uh, uh, you know, to enable a future that's more stable. Uh, I, you know, I, I look forward to the amount of money that can be invested. There's a £60 billion pipeline at the moment uh, that's being prepared by the, um, by the public sector, just waiting for money to be invested from the private sector. And I, I suspect that there is that willingness to be able to uh, invest that money. We just have to make a business case and uh, it'll be available. Uh, so that's that's a note of optimism that it doesn't necessarily have to come from government. It can come from that those wealthy individuals or those wealthy corporations who you know who are apparently the ones who have benefited from the uh, uh, the equality divide. You know they're, they're, that's where the money is mm. uh, in pension funds and in organisations that've got lot, lots of cash. But if they're prepared to invest it in climate change, it will be beneficial for us all. And uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, work work out. It's the framework, isn't it, Richard? You know, it's it's it's, it's facilitating the right co the the culture, but the legislation and and capacity building so that the public sector can um, access that money, which isn't always easy when, um, you know, you, yeah, in terms of due diligence and all the requirements for, for that investment. But like you say, I think it is a way forward. And um, the sooner that that, uh, that um, sort of framework, investment framework changes so that there's that, the ease it's easier for the public sector to access that funding, um, the better. But one of the things I was just thinking about in terms of um, in terms of like the role of local government that we haven't touched on is the importance that that, that councils have of facilitating um, moves by the you know the the, the other public sector organisations in their district. So almost like as place based leaders and you know, bringing together partners. So that's something that we are looking to do more of in Lancaster in terms of really working with some of our partner organisations. So whether that's our universities or the um, voluntary sector, the health sector, there's across all of those organisations, there is um, a sort of strategic commitment to action on uh, climate change um carbon reductions and what we we're hoping to do now is to start to really um get people together to look at well how can we work together on some really tan you know tangible outcomes on on this agenda so just to give a couple of examples so like staff travel planning you know and analyzing where are you know where are all the commuters going um coming from what could we do jointly to actually say how can we help modal shift between us you know as a, as a district in terms of travel patterns or it could be about assets better use of the existing assets we have so that we can save money so that we can then invest in other things um you know whether that's office space or um 
sort of customer facing hubs, that kind of thing, you know, could they be provided jointly? And then I would like to think that ultimately yeah, new projects in terms of, you know, joint projects in terms of whether it's renewable energy or retrofit so that we actually pool resources and uh, work together. And I think that councils generally have got a good reputation for working across the board. And, and that's certainly something that we've, that we've built on in Lancaster. And I'm looking you know, we have a program to start really um, honing that next year. So that's one area where I'm optimistic for some action as well. I think the conversation has highlighted the need for partnerships of all kinds. We've talked about behaviour change, we've talked about central government, we've talked about local government, and, and then of course the private sector. Um, the report is called Leveling Up Emissions Down. It's on the Key Cities website. I want to thank you both for sharing your challenges and your optimism uh, and your pessimism and everything in between uh, with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our organization members and supporters on Patreon for making this show possible. If you love what we do, please consider joining them. Thanks for listening to the Developer Podcast, produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you love what we do, please consider supporting us, like and subscribe to the podcast, come to a Festival of Place event, buy a copy of our magazine, become a Patreon, or sign up to be an organization member.